What foreign policy aspects were omitted and ignored in the recent Canadian federal election? Do any of the opposition parties fundamentally differ with the Liberals with regarding the treatment of Chinese executive Meng Wanzhou? Was the Liberal Party's history affected by the work of eugenicists in the middle of the 20th century? What can ordinary Canadians do to shift off the track elites in this country has set for us all? This week on the Global Research News Hour, with the election behind us now, we'll plan to take a closer look at the broader patterns facing the country that got little attention in the campaign. We will take a look at Canadian foreign policy with foreign policy critic and activist Eve Engler. We will have a short discussion on the Meng Wanzhou situation with Ken Stone of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. And in our final half hour, we are joined by Matthew Errett, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, who will discuss with us how the political direction of the party that won the, the Liberals saw its patterns shift in a fundamentally different direction during the latter half of the 20th century. On this week's program, Canadian Election 44, No Mice in the Field of Cats. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 24th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabe Gaki, the homeland of the Métis and historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. AFLDS explained that over 32 studies, quote, show 96% positive effects, unquote, from using one of these protocols as directed. In 2015, the WHO included ivermectin in its list of essential medicines for human use prophylactically or treatment. Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, or FLCCC, founder Dr. Pierre Corey called ivermectin's effectiveness in treating the viral illness miraculous. Yet, U.S. Western dark forces, their anti-public health officials and MSM press agents falsely debunk and demean use of known safe and effective protocols for treating and curing flu clash COVID. Their diabolical aim is all about causing mass casualties. That comes from the article. Indisputable science, diabolical crimes against humanity. I refuse to be silent. Stephen Lenman, by Stephen Lenman, posted September 22nd. Let's put some numbers behind this to understand probabilities. 
China has a massive industrial sector, so massive it currently consumes four times more primary energy than its transport sector and more primary energy than all of the U.S. and European industrial sectors combined. So it's big. Will the CCP willingly negatively impact this sector whereby it threatens China's growing lead in the global economy and hence increasing global political influence? That comes from the article, Global Economic Chaos, BlackRock and City Get on Board the Climate Train by Chris McIntosh, posted September 22nd, originally published on International Man. Everyone acknowledges and agrees that VAERS is vastly underreported, but now we have an expert analysis on just how underreported adverse events are from Dr. Jessica Rose. Her conservative estimate based on a careful analysis of the data is that the events recorded in VAERS need to be multiplied by a factor of 41. That would mean that a conservative estimate of the true numbers of fetal deaths would be 66,174 when their mothers are injected with a COVID-19 shot. Besides the fetal deaths, we also know there are 96 recorded cases where a breastfed child was injured after the nursing mother took a COVID-19 shot. Source. That comes from the article, Thousands of Fetal Deaths and Injuries Now Reported Following COVID-19 Injections of Pregnant Women by Brian Shilhavy, posted September 22nd, originally published in Health Impact News. They need to stop being politically correct about the COVID-19 narrative. Maxime Bernier repeatedly said they were trying to flatten the lie, quote-unquote. But in reality, there are like 10 or 20 lies around COVID-19. For example, while the PPC has been speaking out against the vaccine passport, they haven't spoken out against the vaccine itself. The vaccine is not, quote, safe and effective, unquote, and I think they need to say that. That comes from the article, Canada's Elections. People's Party of Canada, PPC, took a firm stance on the COVID mandate and vaccine passport. By John C.A. Manley, posted September 22nd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. federal election of September 20th, there was a range of issues that got attention, though as usual few with regard to foreign policy. We take the time to address some of those issues on this show with Eve Engler. He's a Montreal-based activist, author of 11 books, and a prominent critic of Canadian foreign policy. Could you detail for us the, the top four or five questions on foreign policy that you think should have gotten mentioned in debates or on the campaign trail? Uh, yeah, well, the plan to purchase uh, 88 new uh, cutting-edge fighter jets 
for $19 billion, something like um, uh, $80 billion, uh, 70 to $80 billion over their life cycle. Uh, that is an issue that definitely deserved to be discussed, but the parties really uh, uh, didn't. Um, the Canada losing its bid for a seat on the United Nations Security Council a year ago, uh, that was basically ignored. Uh, that was clearly a rebuke of Canadian foreign policy, but the opposition parties should have had an opportunity to uh, sort of take shots at the Liberals, uh, particularly the NDP and the Greens, but they, they, they chose not to do that on the Security Council uh, defeat. Um, the collapse of the Lima Group, the uh, Canadian government-sponsored uh, uh, coalition of countries to try to overthrow Venezuela's government, uh, Lima <laughs> it withdrew from the Lima group um, not that long ago. Uh, that should have been an issue that, um, and generally Canada's campaign to overthrow the government in Venezuela, that's something that should have been, uh, should have been debated. Uh, connected to that is the, maybe to a little bit lesser extent, the Canada's uh, support for the coup in, uh, in Bolivia. Um, the mining, Canada's massive global mining sector uh, as many as 75% of the world's mining companies are based in this country. And uh, there's innumerable examples of Canadian mining companies engaged in abuses abroad. Pretty much you can pick any country in the global south from the Congo to the Philippines. And there's an example of a Canadian mining company that's uh, you know, been involved in violence, destroying uh, local water systems, uh, uh, you know, environmental damage, massive pollution. Um, and uh, there's been an effort going back years to uh, end public support for, for Canadian mining companies found to be involved in, in major abuses abroad. The Trudeau government promised to bring in a uh, ombudsperson around mining with some teeth uh, when they were first elected in 2015. Uh, they uh, initially actually had a proposal that did have some teeth for an ombudsperson. And then the mining industry lobbied hard and uh, the ombudsperson that they set up uh, basically uh, uh, has, has no power to, uh, to end uh, public support for Canadian mining companies engaged in abuses abroad. That issue, the whole issue of Canadian mining companies was, was just uh, completely left off of, uh, of the agenda. Um, and then maybe the, the most outrageous from a, from a sort of political uh, media standpoint is Afghanistan. So Afghanistan ended up being covered a lot in, in the media, uh, but, but the NDP and the Greens uh, chose not to take any shots at the Liberals or the Conservatives for the 13-year war that they had Canada in uh, between 20, 2001 and 2014 in Afghanistan. So the only criticism that they made of, um, of Afghanistan, what was going on in Afghanistan, was that we didn't do enough to bring those who were allied with us, uh, you know, interpreters, uh, different Af Afghan uh, uh, individuals who supported the Canadian occupation, uh, we didn't do enough to bring them out of the country when, uh, you know, the Taliban uh, uh, took over, um, uh, which is really a, a criticism that kind of implies sort of Canada is a force for good, right? These, these are our allies who are working with the good guys, Canada, you know, I'm completely comfortable with 
more Afghans uh, coming to Canada and obviously anybody who's uh, even if you collaborated with a foreign occupation, I don't want to see people, you know, killed because they did that. Uh, so certainly open the doors to more to more Afghans to come to Canada. But let's let's not be naive about what we're talking about. We're talking about people who broadly collaborated with the foreign occupation and let's not act like they didn't you know help out when there was torture going on they didn't help out when canadian troops were involved in nighttime assassination raids calling in airstrikes that killed people etc cetera, etc cetera. um so so you had probably the most remarkable collapse of a canadian uh, military mission ever really you know 13 year big biggest war that Canada's been involved in since the Second World War um, and remarkable collapse front page of the paper for you know a month and the NDP when they were asked to comment on it by McLean's refused to even respond uh, to to a, a questioner trying to basically make the point that the NDP was you know avant-garde by criticizing the mission way back in 2006-2007. So I think what happened with the Afghan issue uh, was just a remarkable example of the opposition parties deciding that they they didn't see any upside in um, in challenging uh, militarism, uh, in challenging uh, a clearly unjust uh, war that Canada participated in. Climate change was a big issue in this election, yet nobody mentioned the role that the military uh, is taking up in order to, uh, I mean, I think you said 59% of our, nat- of our greenhouse gas emissions from the government is coming from uh, uh, the, the, the national defense. So that that's a, in itself a, is a very uh, significant uh, absence. Well, it, it's wor- worse than just an absence. I mean, it, it, so basically the federal government, the Trudeau government has this like, you know, net zero plan, but for the federal government, but they omit the, <laughs> the military, which is responsible in 2019, 2020, was responsible for 59% of government greenhouse gas emissions. So you have a plan hit net zero, but you, you're, you're, you're omitting the, uh, the biggest, far and away, the biggest uh, polluter, and and the opposition parties. That's not an issue. Uh, also, there's a push to include uh, 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 greenhouse or uh, military uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the uh, upcoming uh, uh, climate negotiations, uh, international negotiations. Because uh, you know, going back decades, the the uh, the Pentagon, particularly in the U.S., has tried to always exclude. Uh, uh, the question of military emissions, because the Pentagon is the, the biggest emitter, institutional emitter in the world, um, uh, and and uh, none of the none of the parties, uh, you know, want to bring that issue up either. Uh, so so, and it's not even just the question of, of 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 carbon emissions of the military, which is you know are massive, and, and the same thing goes. We're gonna we're 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 gonna buy these fighter jets. That are incredibly carbon emitting, uh, and and this is not we're not you know this is for the next this isn't for decades going forward. So again, we say we're we're trying to you know we've reached net zero, but we're plowing you know tens of billions of dollars in into uh, uh, military uh, equipment that's just going to you know lock in uh, future uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so, and so, uh, this is just all uh, dropped from from you know. It's not part of the discussion in any 
domain. None of the parties mention it in their, you know, questions about about uh, the defense sector and their platforms about this defense sector or any other ecological elements of the military. The military has all kinds of other damaging ecological elements. Of course, dropping bombs uh, <laughs> is not something that's really good for uh, uh, ecosystems uh, and you know there's a long history of uh, you know indigenous lands right like reserves that were you know after putting indigenous people into reserves then we you know took parts parts of their reserves to give to the military for military bases or for military uh, uh, training grounds and then pollute the the heck out of these uh, uh, lands with with uh, um, you know bombs or, or uh, ordinance that's been uh, uh, left and uh, and uh, and you know these questions are completely completely dropped from from the discussion so even in the context of a election that had a fair bit around uh, you know ecological issues or particularly around climate the bringing up the military in that context is just viewed as uh, you know outside of bounds um, and, and that just speaks to speaks to this um, this uh, quite uh, a staunchly uh, militaristic ethos that we have in this country, despite all of the you know rhetoric of what a you know peaceful nation, peacekeeping country, and all that kind of stuff, the military, in fact, is is a very very powerful uh, uh, institution uh, in this country. Eve, I wanted to ask you if if you and others made any attempts to raise a profile on those issues through uh, I don't know works of guerrilla activism or talking to. I don't know, uh, maybe NDP, Green, Bloc. Uh, did did you make any uh, any any significant uh, uh, moves in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been writing about these issues, uh, you know, regularly, uh, and and um, uh, the you know, I've you know, for instance, around the NDP, the the Social Democratic Party, I've been you know challenging their militarism and their foreign policy for a long time. And they're they're clearly you know fully aware of 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 the matter. Um, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute uh, put out a survey, uh, sent it to all the all the uh, the parties um, around Canadian foreign policy issues. Only two parties responded. Uh, the survey was made. We made it as simple as possible for them to to uh, participate by just saying you could just say yes, no, or abstain. Uh, and then there was a, a room for people to, uh, uh, for the parties to provide more uh, uh, ex explanation if they wanted to give more explanation. So you could have, you could have done the survey in probably, you know, 15, 20 minutes if you wanted. Um, uh, only the Communist Party and the NDP uh, responded. The Conservatives responded by saying, we are not going to respond. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, the answers were quite illuminating. I mean, I think as a, generally the, the communist party's answers were, were positions that I would agree with. The NDP's answers were, were quite bad, kind of, I would say surprisingly bad. Uh, for instance, they stated, there was a, a section that said, um, do you want uh, more the same, uh, less or none, uh, Canadian engagement in NATO, NORAD, and other other things, including the uh, the core group in Haiti, which is this group that set up 17 years ago 
of foreign ambassadors in Haiti, basically that's been trying to dictate Haitian affairs for the past 17 years after the, the coup in 2004. Um, and recently the core group, you know, even basically selected the prime minister of, of Haiti in a really quite a, a flagrant way. And the NDP's position in the, on that question was we want the same uh, for uh, engagement, Canada's engagement with the core group, which, you know, this is something that, that there's no, I mean, the, the facts are in that the core group has been bad for Haitians, but even if, even if the core group hadn't been bad for Haitians by, you know, what they've done over the last 17 years, um, it's just a, a, like the idea that the ambassador of, uh, of Jamaica, the Philippines, uh, uh, Paraguay in Ottawa, that they got together and they had this group that basically put out press releases saying this, this should be the Canadian prime minister or this should be this should be what the Canadian government does or, you know, this kind of open, flagrant colonial imperial uh, intervention in Canadian political affairs, everyone would think that was just a terrible idea. And here we are part of that in Haiti uh, and the NDP is not, not even saying we want less of that. They're saying we want to continue uh, you know, with that, which just speaks to how this, this issue that's actually you know, quite important for Haitians, like almost, almost all Haitians that are politically aware are, are you know, aware of the core group in Haiti, but basically no Canadians even know of its existence. Uh, uh, so this, this, this is something that's viewed as completely marginal within Canada, but it's actually not marginal for, you know, 11 people, 11 million people's lives um, that the, you know, even a social democratic party would, would, uh, would, uh, you know, support that just speaks to just how imperialistic our whole kind of political culture is in this country, um, and so there was so was, there was no efforts to to uh, you know, like we did in the 2019 election before there was uh, you know efforts by the Disruption Network Canada to to intervene to disrupt events to you know go to events where the prime minister was there and yell free Palestine or or criticize their position on Venezuela or criticize their climate policies. Uh, we did that with you know quite a few uh, ministers, um, uh, but the pandemic really kind of changed the uh, the dynamics of of being able to. To, to do that kind of uh, uh, political action, um, uh, so 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 the efforts to to engage the political parties was more at the level of writing and in, in the case of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, sending a survey to the to the different uh, political parties. Eve Engler, I got to close there, but I want to thank you for your thoughts. It's always a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you back on the show. Well, I, I very much enjoy doing, doing this, uh, uh, Michael, and uh, I look forward to it uh, again in the future. We've been speaking to author, activist, and Canadian foreign policy critic Eve Engler. He's joining us from Montreal. One other issue that evaded the attention of voters is the situation evolving around the arrest of Meng Wanzhou back in December of 2018. To discuss this matter, the Global Research News Hour got hold of Ken Stone of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. He recently organized a panel discussion discussing the topic. Ken, when the matter was raised in the campaign among the political parties, there was universal acceptance as to the legitimacy of detaining Meng among, uh, given our extradition treaty with the U.S., and universal condemnation for the apparently retaliatory arrest of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig on charges with no legitimacy. Could you raise with the listenership the fundamental issues at odds with the current court case and Canada's proper response? Okay, well, there is no 
direct connection between the arrest of Meng Wanzhou and the arrest of the two Michaels in China. Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Canada by the Trudeau government at the behest of the Trump administration, uh, who six days later uh, announced, uh, Mr. Trump announced that he was using, he was planning to use uh, Meng Wanzhou as a bargaining chip in his trade war with China. So it was a political arrest. Meng was not arrested for anything she did in Canada. She was uh, charged with fraud relating to an incident in 2013 in Hong Kong, China with a Chinese bank concerning a subsidiary called Skycom of uh, Huawei and its relationship to Iran. So it had nothing to do with Canada. And frankly, it had nothing to do with the United States. Uh, this was an attempt by the United States to exert extra uh, territoriality to, uh, to try and extend its jurisdiction over the entire world uh, and punish countries and people who violated their illegal sanctions on Iran. Now, the two Michaels, uh, on the other hand, were, were arrested for, by the Chinese government while they were in China for breaking the Chinese law, specifically on espionage. Um, if you want a good analysis uh, of the, the uh, espionage activities that the two Michaels were doing in China, I recommend the Canada Files story called The Two Michaels Are Spies. And uh, it, it, uh, since I only have a limited time, I can't go into the details, but basically um, what happened was that for 50 years, Canada had good relations with uh, China and the Chinese government was willing to put up with a certain amount of uh, intelligence gathering by Canada. But the, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou really really hurt China. It really made them question the relationship that of the five decades of good relations with Canada. And they looked around the country and they said, what are these two guys doing here? Um, and uh, when they looked a little closer, they could see that one of them uh, was uh, taking pictures of Chinese military parades and sending them to the other who sent them out to other sources. And the other one was working for the International Crisis Group in China, which is our Western NGO that has been involved in the breakup of Yugoslavia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and now Ethiopia. So the Chinese, uh, after Hmong was arrested, were less tolerant about shenanigans being carried on by Canadians in China. There's, so there's a, an indirect link between the two arrests, the three arrests, but there's no direct link that the, the two Michaels were engaged in espionage in China. They were tried and convicted. One of them was sentenced, whereas Meng did not commit any crime whatsoever in Canada. And it appears she didn't commit any other crimes in Hong Kong either. Okay. Um, just a, a brief minute or so. Uh, you co-hosted a panel discussion uh, that you des designate as a post-election discussion. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about the individuals sitting on the panel? Yes, um, the three individuals sitting on the panel are a international lawyer, criminal lawyer, John Philpot, with 35 years of experience based in Montreal. The second one is a retired U.S. judge, 
Julie Tang, who was a co-founder, who co-founded Pivot to Peace upon her retirement uh, from the judiciary in the United States. And the third person is Stephen Gowans, uh, our own Ottawa-based um, uh, political author, writer, and blogger at What's Left. And the purpose of the panel is to uh, talk about a possible change in uh, in course on the Hmong file by the new government. New governments, when they come into power, often change their policies. And we're hoping uh, to put pressure on the Trudeau government to, uh, to release Hmong Wanzhou because it's become clear since the tr uh, trove of documents from the uh, HB HSBC Bank uh, was released in Hong Kong that there was no fraud that the, the uh, bank knew exactly what was going on. Everything was on the up and up and there was no, uh, the, there was no damage that the bank can claim. So there's really no fraud. There's no basis to the charge that, that was laid by the United States in New York three years ago that she committed bank fraud, wire fraud and all this other stuff. Um, and so we're calling for her to be released. We're calling for our, uh, Canada to reestablish good relations with the People's Republic of China that we had for 50 years. And we're calling for the Trudeau government to set a more independent course in foreign policy, more like the, the kind of policy that his father, Pierre Trudeau, initiated 50 years ago when he recognized the People's Republic of China and opened a diplomatic and friendly economic relations with that country. That was Ken Stone. He is a representative of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. With Election Day over, we're going to take a look at some of the deeper processes in which we are all uncaptured. Joining us to discuss this is Matthew Arrett. He's a journalist and is the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He's author of the Untold History of Canada book series, as well as a recent article, Revenge of the Technocrats, How Canada's Liberal Party Became an Appendage of the Great Reset. So first of all, just talking about the election for a second, uh, so the Trudeau government won again, and it's uh, basically the same result as uh, we had it two years ago. Uh, just a, a quick, you know, but before we get into some of the deep history of his party, maybe you could just give us a, a quick recap of, of, the, of what you saw uh, playing out over the last few weeks. Oh, yes, most certainly. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people were a little bit befuddled. Uh, we were only expecting to have a, a, an election in two years. It, it happened a lot sooner than people realized. And obviously, the liberal government um, of Christia Freeland <clears throat> was uh, was pushing for a majority. Uh, we are about to enter globally. And I'm, there's no real way to answer why this happened with from a just purely Canadian context. You have to look globally that we are going into a... Uh, a period of storm. We are caught as a as a transatlantic community between two systems, and the system that began really with the 1971 flo 71 floating of the fixed fixed exchange rate, the floating of the dollar onto the floating exchange rates, and the abandonment of the gold uh, standard. 
uh, ushered in an age of deregulation, consumerism, speculation, and increasingly imperialism as nations were looted uh, abroad to service ever-growing rates of debt and consumption uh, in the developed part of the sector. And that became sort of a new type of model that ingrained itself for over 40 years. That is now coming to an end. The bubbles are, are collapsing. We've got about a $1.2 quadrillion derivatives bubble. And even before COVID-19 was sprung onto us, uh, already people like Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, was already saying that we are heading towards a financial Armageddon. This is, bef this is months before the uh, event 201 uh, organized by the World Economic Forum. So we are, we are now entering a fight over what the new system is going to look like. Uh, going into this, the, those who run and manage the Liberal, part, liberal Party, um, and soon Mark Carney will be amongst that crowd, both Carney and Freeland being both Oxford uh, you know, operatives, as well as trustees of the World Economic Forum, are high-level managers, high-level technocrats um, who have been selected to... Uh, increasingly manage the ship of state. Tr they wanted a majority government because in Canada, if you have a majority, you can do whatever you want. And there is less need for pesky democratic institutions like opposition uh, or debate. Um, they did not get that. And I think that's the best thing that could be said. And I think also just seeing the, the support rise for the People's Party of Canada was also useful, um, although there were no seats won. Now, whether that's the effect of some under under discovered fraud or whatever i don't know i've i've never seen crowds as large as i saw across canada marching against the uh, vaccine passports all of whom i would imagine would have voted the majority for uh, the people's party of canada why that didn't happen again i i can only imagine we know what about was Trudeau himself? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, he, yeah. you mentioned it as the, the party of Christian Freeland and, and Mark Carney. Uh, yeah. I mean, everybody's portraying that this election is because it's Trudeau who's serving himself to, to get a, a majority government or something like that. I mean, well, what's your take on, on Trudeau as an individual? I mean, is he. Oh, that's uh, a great question. Yeah, I mean, I wrote an article back in 2012 called What Does the Empire Have Planned for Poor Justin Trudeau? Um, I, I, he's, he's a ski instructor, um, drama teacher. Uh, I, I don't see him as much more than a synthetic shell, uh, sort of like a, a Biden personality type who can only operate with controllers, handlers, and teleprompters, um, and coaches, people like Stephen, like, uh, Gerard Butts, for example, was an early handler who ran the world, the, the world wildlife fund of Canada, who was his childhood friend placed to manage him as, as but his whole life, I mean, has been largely under the watch of people who would like to use him. And, uh, and in, in the new article you reference on the, uh, the technocrats in Canada, um, I took the opportunity to just go through a little bit of who those handlers were, both in terms of what selected him and put him on a platform in, in 2006 to see if he was the stuff that they, that they want, that they needed to uh, revise and reform the Liberal Party. Um, in a conference that happened in Montblanc, uh, run by a bunch of privy councillors uh, like John Manley, Bob Ray, Anne McClellan, Diana Carney herself was a big part of this, the wife of Mark Carney, uh, under a, a think tank called Canada 2020. But yeah, I don't see Justin as much more than a, a pretty face who's uh, programmed. Uh, let's take, a, take it back to uh, like 
well, well over a century. Uh, there's, uh, you mentioned that a, a group of individuals uh, are the Fabians. Uh, they, they, they were active uh, from the beginning. Basically, they're facing two. Uh, basically, there's a, a, a the, the the influence of the British imperialists, and then there's the the influence of the American uh, uh, vision of nationality. On, on, in between, so there's kind of a, a face-off against two, and, and then into this circle, uh, you see these Fabians uh, are trying to have used the Rhodesian Trust and the the Roundtable uh, selection ultimately to influence the direction of the Canadian political parties. You know, take us through some of that uh, uh, that whole scenario where they sure. basically the these are elites who yeah. are uh, directing things. Well, in the most summary fashion, because I know we have a limited amount of time, um, and people, if they want to really dig into this more, they can go to my website, canadianpatriot.org, to get a fuller picture. Um, and my book series, my four-volume Untold History of Canada, goes through exactly what you just said. Um, Carol Quigley is a historian from Georgetown University uh, who did remarkable work. When I read his books on the, uh, the role of the Roundtable Movement um, from its foundation in really the 1902 uh, Rhodes Trust with the death of Cecil Rhodes all the way through the 20th century, it, it was an eye-opener for me and it completely shifted how I was reading and evaluating Canadian history because nothing can be understood without these two organizations. Um, one of the key things is the Fabian, like you said, the Fabian Society of Canada. This was originally modeled on the British Fabian Society that was run out of the London School of Economics. It was a um, very oligarchical organization that utilized socialism to attract labor, but really it was always about like Bernard Shaw, uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell, uh, Lord Halford Mackinder was a leading figure. They, they were themselves misanthropic anti-humanists who liked use, utilizing the veneer of socialism to create a scientific dictatorship, a technocratic management of, a, of society under scientific principles, which in their world, in their mind, were, was based on eugenics and population control. In Canada, this organization was set up in 1931 called the League, League for Social Reconstruction, founded by five or four Rhodes Scholars and one official Fabian. Um, in 19, so this was done to provide a solution to the economic crisis of the 1930s. Uh, one of the key figures in Canada who was a runner who controlled the roundtable movement was a, a student of Lord Milner, uh, was named Vincent Massey, who was our first Canadian-born governor general. Um, he was at the time the Liberal Party uh, president in 1931-32, while the Conservatives of R.B. Bennett were in power. R.B. Bennett was also an Anglophile who retired to London as a Viscount after his, his tenure in uh, Canada was finished. But uh, there was a battle, uh, just like there was in 2006, uh, over what the Liberal Party's character would be. And different uh, agents within the Fabian Society and Roundtable were trying to, on the one hand, um, when they realized that the the League for Social Reconstruction and its political party, which became the, the Commonwealth Party of Canada, the or later NDP, when that was not achieving the success it needed, they changed and, and focused on taking over like a virus takes over a cell, the Liberal Party, to try to purge it of a lot of the pro-development leaders who were then known as Laurier Liberals. Uh, they were all people who had encircled, who had worked with uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, who was a very devout a uh, supporter of progress and anti-Malthusian, that is, he was against controlling or reducing world population, and he was a big fan of Abraham Lincoln. 
Um, so Lori and liberals. So you say that, uh, I mean, yeah, you, mm. it, it wasn't always uh, this way. I mean, it was a, it had a more progressive era back around uh, the, the, in the times of Laurier. And, oh, yeah. uh, but I mean, all, all of these influences, the, the Malthusians and so on, it, it's more associated in, in the public mind. It's more associated with the Nazis, right? And, uh, but it, it did ha- have a, a time in the early on where it, it came out of the, these uh, the British constructs. But uh, Well, but just yes, to but- say, yeah, I mean, the, the Nazis modeled their eugenics and sterilization policies on what was already being done in the United States in 33 U.S. states, starting with in- Indiana in 1907, um, as well as two Canadian state uh, provinces, Alberta and B.C., had both sterilized over 7,000 people, according to eugenics practices. Um, which, again, Hitler modeled these things on the practices of the West. The science was supported back then, just in many ways, like much of the science is funded today, by foundations like the, Mas- the Macy Foundation, the, Jos- the Josiah Macy Foundation being a big one, also Rockefeller Foundation and Carnegie Foundation, which were also, by the way, funding the arts and, and historical narratives of Canada, which was one of the interesting ironies is that many of the uh, historians like W.L. Morton, who's a famous Canadian historian, was also a funded by the, uh, the the Rockefeller Foundation, while at the same time was himself a Rhodes Scholar, promoting anti-American narratives, always painting America as intrinsically this evil empire, but yet he was being funded by American institutions. So why? What was that really about? And same thing for Ella Granistein was also a CIA, uh, which is the Canadian branch of the uh, Roundtable Movement. Uh, kind of like the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, is the American branch of the Roundtable Movement. He's also an operative for this group promoting anti-American historical narratives. So why? And to answer why, you got to understand that what took Laurier out of power um, in 1911 was when Laurier was trying to organize a Zollverein, uh, what was called the Customs Union. Uh, that's what Bismarck did to unify Germany around a protective tariff. And Laurier was utilizing the American system model uh, as applied by Abraham Lincoln. Now, most American presidents, the ones who tend not to die in office, are, are typically idiots or traitors. There, there's been very few really genuine American presidents who died for the cause of the American Constitution, but Lincoln was, a, was one of them. So was Garfield and so was McKinley. Now, Laurier, who he wanted to create a pro-development uh, complex that could ban British dumping of cheap goods around big projects, big infrastructure projects, like the the transcontinental railway and other things that had been built by Canada and the US. Um, He foresaw a doubling of the population of Canada as well, up to 60 million, he said, which was actually in his time, probably quadrupling. But so his his allies, when he was ousted, it was, and I write about this, a round table movement as well as Orange Man, it's a Freemasonic movement based in primarily Ontario, which ran an operation to oust him in a coup in 1911 that destroyed his his program this by this program by the way is nothing like nafta um but he said uh, to his biographer Odie skelton who became one of the laurier liberals who was blocking the roundtable movement from taking over canadian foreign policy canada is now governed by a junta sitting in london known as the roundtable this is 1916 he's saying this with ramifications in toronto in winnipeg in victoria with tories and grits that's liberals and conservatives receiving their ideas from London and insidiously forcing them onto their respective parties. His Laurier's party ended up taking back control in the 1920s. And then again, in the 1930s, Odie Skelton, Adam Short, uh, Chubby Power. uh, There were a few others too. uh, The justice minister, most of them 
died in 1940 at a certain point strategically. And when they died, the foreign policy establishment of Canada was totally taken over by these, these roundtable operatives who under Vincent Massey were also beginning to infest the Liberal Party uh, on every level. And their, their coup finally happened in an official way, like they fully consolidated their power when C.D. Howe died, uh, Clarence Decatur Howe, who was sort of the minister of everything and led a lot of the biggest projects of growth, the Avro Arrow, Canada's uh, being the second country to have nu uh, nuclear civilian power. All of the big projects were spearheaded by C.D. Howe. So when he died in 57 and the Liberals lost power, um, that five-year interim under Diefenbaker when the Lib Liberals were out of power was when you had uh, a think tank that was run by these roundtable movements that purged the liberals of anybody reminiscent of this old wisdom. And so that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not like, well, I don't know. The, the, when you talk about purging of it, I mean, it's not like they necessarily you know, infected them like the Borg or something like, like that. I mean, they, they, they just ended up on the outskirts of everything. And all of that happened during the, the, the Diefenbaker era, you say? Yeah. They, it was called um, a, Many of them uh, who were purged uh, referred to it as a palace coup, a palace revolution. Um, the the form it took, you're right, it wasn't exactly like a, a, a Borg, but kind of was because <laughs> they wanted it. To, they always wanted technocratic management. And I do think of these like uh, cold, you know, great reset type of personalities as kind of Borg like they do think of artificial intelligence the merging of human beings and machines as being the inevitable course of human destiny that they have to lead. And when you listen to people like Yuval Harari, the uh, one of the ideologues who are, who's always trotted out at these World Economic Forum summits, um, he talks about you know how Darwinism has been the, the driving force of human destiny, which is, has no purpose, no directionality, no morality, which he, he's, he's insulted by the idea of morality. But he says now in the fourth industrial revolution or the third wave, that human humankind will finally take our evolutionary destiny into our own hands, and the uh, intelligent designers, he says, of the this new age is going to be people who run Facebook and Google. Uh, so he's they're they're they are Borg-like in that sense. They don't believe in soul. They don't believe in justice or metaphysical principles that have any intrinsic value. They de they deny that because they use computers and binary computer modeling as their model for what the human mind and soul is and how society should be thus governed. That's no different today than it was when Vincent Massey was talking about the need to create a new technocratic government of Canada or these Lori, uh, these, these, these uh, Fabian Society of Canada operatives talking about the same thing for a scientifically managed society. They are Borg-like. Now, the thing is, no, you're right. It took the form of conferences. So they organized these think tank conferences in 1960, uh, modeled on what Lord, uh, Vincent Massey had done with the Port Hope Conference of 1932. Um, to try to bring together, it's again, mostly people like Walter Gordon, Maurice Lamontagne, who both became presidents of the Privy Council office. Um, Lester Pearson was a tool. He was, a, he was an Oxford Ma Massey scholar. Uh, Keith Davy, Tom Kent. They were all brought together with many others uh, to formulate a, a repackaging of what the, uh, the Liberal Party would be. Um, <clears throat> so that, that was the process of the purging and also the creation of a new technocratically managed uh, type of party under a new image. Uh, they Basically, when they came back to power, they created a new flag to try to give off the illusion that we were more independent and had shook off the yoke of British controls earlier, right? That was 1963. A new, uh, a new song was given. 
And it was basically like a Beatlemania, which this is what they did when they when they repackaged. They, they found that Lester B. Pearson wasn't doing so good of a job selling himself, especially to the French Canadian population because he couldn't speak French. And they realized that he was not very effective as a thinker. And so they had to do kind of like what they're doing to Justin Trudeau. They're, they're preparing the groundwork to get in somebody a bit more competent to manage the ship, who at that time was an NDP leader or a person who had uh, named Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Pierre Elliott Trudeau with Pelletier and uh, his three doves uh, were all NDP. They were, they were working from the Privy Council office to purge Quebec originally from Christianity in the, the 1950s, running Cité Libre which was sort of a, a news magazine, kind of like what Trotsky's magazines did in Russia earlier, to organize young intellectuals who were very nihilistic, existential, around a hate for all. And Quebec had a lot of corruption, right? There was a lot of corruption in the church, no doubt. No, I'm not trying to say it's all good, but it wasn't all bad either. There was a big resistance against eugenics from the Catholic church because they, they had a sense that this is, this is wrong. You can't do that. Or uh, the Darwinian reforms in education that were being pushed through were being resisted by the church. So anyway, there was also a lot of uh, infrastructure building. And that was under the L'Union Nationale government. That was all purged. And uh, Pierre Elliott so, yeah, was brought in. So you're talking about how they set up the system so that you would deliberately attract these people who are not your, your average Joe and uh, would be at the same time hostile to uh, those uh, you know, and Catholics or, or other individuals that uh, you know who, yeah, who would basically, was, basically stand the, in the way. The replacement of one oligarchy for another oligarchy. They they yeah. they got rid of the English and the the Vat, you know the Vatican influenced oligarchs of of Quebec, and they replaced it with a more like people like the Demaray clan. Uh, Ma- uh, Maurice Strong was originally one of the people who were who was on the selection committee that that did the talent search for Pierre Elliott Trudeau. It was like, okay, well, let's use him in 1964. Um, he was also the vice president of Power Corporation. Um, so they created basically a new indigenous uh, Quebec. And I don't say indigenous from the native sense. I just mean it from the standpoint of French Canadian uh, technocratic oligarchy. Um, a lot of this was run by Vincent Massey's collaborator, uh, uh, George, Father Georges-Henri Lévesque, who ran the sociology department of, at Université de Laval. This Pierre Elliott Trudeau and many of these Rhodes Scholars uh, worked out of there to manage the Quiet Revolution, which was just a technocratic revolution. Um, and this is what later went on to crushing the L'Union Nationale when it tried to do a revival under uh, Daniel Johnson Sr. in 1966, 67. And it also, I think, uh, you know, there was a fight over what the future of Quebec was going to be at that time. And uh, both Pierre Elliott Trudeau as well as uh, René Lévesque hated Daniel Johnson because he broke the, uh, the Hegelian uh, polar uh, game where it was supposed to be, you know, Lévesque, ver- Lévesque and Pierre Elliott Trudeau worked together on Cité Libre. They both collaborated on this. Pierre Elliott Trudeau was the editor-in-chief. Uh, René Lévesque was a frequent contributor or writer. Um, both of them were creating, again, um, a dialectic of just Quebec language-based fights against the federal government that would be like the the Lincoln that would fight to keep the nation together, and it was it was a fake. It was it was a game, a, a theater of the absurd. But but Daniel Johnson Senior, you see, was breaking that with his big fight for Manicouagan Five to create a new engineering civilization in in Quebec uh, with Charles de Gaulle, who he invited to come to 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 organize with him for a global uh, international. Front, uh, it was called a. Uh, a, a a global front against empire and progress around the Mont Francophonie, uh, which ultimately was disrupted when Daniel Johnson died in 68 at the uh, the day that he was inaugurating the Manicouagan Five, never, never an autopsy done. 
And then just a few months later, uh, Charles de Gaulle was ousted under a bit of a, a, a color revolution in France. Could you talk about some of the – I mean with, with this new guard in charge, can you talk about some of the, uh, the efforts uh, put placed by, uh, by Trudeau Sr. That, that helped sculpt the past – towards uh, the, the current generation. Sure. Between, uh, and I guess we only have a few minutes left here, right? Eh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, between 1968 and 72 was the technocratic revolution. Um, so what, what or Trudeau gave a speech uh, saying that, the, that cybernetics and systems analysis, which were developed by Norbert Wiener in, after World War II, also funded by the, the Macy Foundation, and were, these were the tools that would have to be used to save, save society. Um, this is what met, organized the complete overhaul of the federal government, and it was turned into a giant complex bureaucracy under Trudeau, highly compartmentalized, and that's the way cybernetics works. Uh, the idea is a helmsman. So you have a gubernatos, it's a, it's a Greek word, um, and the idea is in a, in, a, in a boat, only the helmsman needs to know what the hole is doing. Everybody else needs to just have specialization in their local part, rowers, whatever, uh, everybody else, engineers on the machines below. They don't need to think of the whole. So the idea was to organize an entire government around having only a small few within the Privy Council office and Prime Minister's office together, overlapping, um, who managed and saw the whole. Everybody else was highly bureaucratized and could only see myopically within their specialized departments. And uh, and so it was. this is what was put into place. It demoralized a lot of uh, civil servants. Books were written about this. Uh, it destroyed the momentum for any type of big, big development projects, which required a 10, 20 year orientation that had formally governed Canada's foreign policy and, and internal policy thinking, because all of a sudden um, everything could be mathematized and controlled by those who want to just maintain a system rather than change the system. These guys are about control. See, that's the Borg like thing. They're all about controlling the thing. And when you have large scale infrastructure or scientific and technological progress that discovers new resources and new new laws of the universe that applies them to new technologies all of the rules that manage the production and consumption and motion of goods in the system changes you change the rules of the game they don't want the great games rules to be changed so that's what these control freaks have always been about and moving through the 1970s um this has sort of been what has grown canada's deep state as well as the u.s deep state too um and I would just say one thing, because people are like, well, that was maybe 1968 to 72. Um, certainly the, the Milton Friedman uh, free trade years of, of everything goes that, that reigned for four years, that doesn't apply to that. Yes and no. See, the thing is what, what they did is on a governmental level, they kept those types of institutions, the cybernetics institutions, whereas on the economic level, they did a nation stripping by saying, okay, you want freedom, you want the personal enterprise, let's give you more, so much freedom, it's going to make you sick. You'll never want freedom again. And they deregulated everything um, in a certain type of way that created an overbloated consumerism that was ultimately self-destructive, as we now see the effects of no infrastructure investments for 40 years, like a complete loss of our manufacturing, a, a dumbed down population, right? Um, a decadence that's that's beyond belief. It's, it's, it's absurd. Where people are now saying, oh, yeah, like young people, the millennials, they're like, well, yeah, we've had enough capitalism. I think we need now something something that transcends that, you know, and, and so they're falling for things like the you'll own nothing and be happy. Owning things is the cause of corruption. The great reset. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. But they always, and so now they're, they're, they're integrating now the economic and political aspects of things under the great reset, under a new type of managerial system or what James Burnham and my wife wrote a paper on this 
uh, called the the oligarchical collectivism attacked by Orwell. Uh, but that's really what they want. Now, there are there are nations in the world that are rejecting that, that are saying no to the depopulation, no to the anti-development, no, no to one world government. But that's, those countries are primarily in Eurasia around the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the Belt and Road Initiative. It's not here in the West under the transatlantic cave uh, or cage, I should say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically this, I mean, it's, it's probably the most fundamental changes that have been taken place by any political party in, in, in a long time. Uh, I'm wondering if, if, I mean, it doesn't seem like any of the opposition parties are, are fighting it really. So I'm wondering what, what would you suggest we could do? I mean, organize a new political party or should we, uh, take some sort of action with our economic tools or individually. What what do you think we could do to uh, you know, reverse the tide of this uh, direction that we're on? Well, people are, might not find my answer very satisfying. I I, I think that um, <clears throat> the 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 mo- the closest thing to a viable type of party we have as a movement is probably at this time with all of its problems the people's party of canada of, of maxime bernier with all of its problems and i'm not i'm not a fan of maxime bernier however i would say as as far as like a viable thing that's that's recognizing the evil of the great reset or the vaccine vaccination dictatorship all this stuff it's the only thing unfortunately at the moment now setting up a new party maybe but the problem is primarily, I think, number one, it's cultural. You have to get people who have a better sense of the dynamics of what, what they are operating within. Most people who try to make a change in Canada, they jump right into the thing without having taken the time to really map out their history, map out the, the, the control centers, like the real control centers of Canada. So they end up getting sabotaged, undermined left and right. It doesn't work out very well. And also, they, they tend to think too Canadian-centric. A lot of Canadians have the same problem as many Americans. They think of their problems as well as their solutions as located within the boundaries of their own country. That is not the case. Our problems are not located within Canada. It's a global issue. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's an economic collapse that's a global collapse. It's managed by a global oligarchy that's transnational. They want to create a one world government to get rid of all nation states everywhere forever. And the only opposition to that, that are the the Eurasian powers that are all saying no to getting rid of nation states as the foundation of international law, and they're saying no to depopulation. Um, so you have to work with the policies of the those who are resisting in a serious way this oligarchy, Russia, China, uh, other countries of that. Increasingly, Iran is integrating into that. So is Pakistan. So are many other countries of Eurasia. Uh, we are very, very stuck in our own little worlds right now. And to the degree that we do that, I don't think we can create a battle plan that has any success in the long term, we'll, we will be undermined. So that's that's part of it. You know, I I, I don't have a, a straight, strong, solid answer for people, yeah. though, as far as like clear cut. Here's what you do. Yeah, well, it's it's that's certainly clear. And I, I got to tell you, Matthew, this is probably unlike uh, uh, most of the uh, post election uh, rundowns that uh, will be taking place in other media. But it's it's welcome on the Global Research News Hour. Thank you so much for being my guest this half hour. Thanks for having me on. We've been speaking with Matthew Errett, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review. You've been listening to the Global Research NewsHour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. 
The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening. 